previously on the Zuring system. The bodies of Dirk and Nancy Haysom are discovered at their home in Lynchburg, Virginia. Soon the daughter of the victims, Elizabeth Haysom, and her boyfriend and son of a German diplomat, Jens Zuring, come under suspicion. After investigators ask Zuring for his fingerprints and hair and blood samples, the two flee the country in October 1985. Initially, the disappearance of the main suspects brings the investigation in Bedford County to a halt. However, a series of coincidences nearly six months later, on April 30, 1986, result in Zuring and Haysom's arrest in London on suspicion of check fraud. The Zuring System a podcast series from CCC Cinema and Television and Argon Lab 2022. Please note, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of physical and sexual violence that are not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 2 of 8, The Confessions. It's June 1986. Jens Zuring and Elizabeth Haysom are in police custody in London. They've been arrested on suspicion of check fraud, a crime they have confessed to. Meanwhile, while inspecting their belongings, Detective Terry Wright has come across a sort of travel log, which he begins to read. The Diary. Do you know... When I went through their correspondence, they had a huge suitcase that was just full of paperwork. There were books, folders, notes, notebooks, pieces of loose paper, magazines, all sorts of things. It was a Soldier of Fortune magazine. I don't know if you know what that is. I read through everything. Soldier of Fortune was an extremely controversial magazine whose main audience was soldiers and mercenaries. The magazine's content included ads for military equipment, as well as descriptions of various methods of killing. According to the New York Times, in 1992, the magazine was found to contain classified ads for contract killers that would play a role in several murders. So to look after their property, we seized everything, which included a load of letters. And I didn't know this at the time, but one of the things I did find sort of immediately was a diary. And um, even though I refer to it diary, it's actually a collection of notes, really, but it's written in diary form. So I called it a diary in 1986, and it's been called a diary ever since. Terry Wright is still confused by the diary to this day. I don't know why they kept all that correspondence. Obviously, some of it was being written as they, as they travelled. I don't know why they kept the copies of the letters. It does seem strange, and if, if they hadn't kept it, then I wouldn't have been suspicious, and they probably would have done a year in, in the UK for fraud and then been on the way. And, and in fact, it would have legitimised their false identities, wouldn't it? Because now they would have a criminal record in their false identities. But that isn't what happens. Wright starts reading the diary, where he not only finds stories from the pair's travels, but also some suspicious entries. 
Uh, but there's also some entries about them wiping their room clean of fingerprints, wiping the car clean as well and leaving it, that car at the airport. And it all looked very suspicious to me. But the one entry in the diary that really uh, made me suspicious was an entry that talked about the case might be solved. Perhaps Jans left his fingerprint on the coffee mug in the Bedford interview. Wright confronts Zuring and Haysom with his findings. I asked them about um, why they were worried about their fingerprints, and they just told me that um, they were just ideas for a book. In fact, when I say they, it was it was Jan Zuring that told me that. And I wasn't satisfied with that answer. Wright can't draw any conclusions from the diary yet, but then he makes a key discovery among the letters he finds in Zuring and Hasem's belongings. There was one letter there that was addressed to officers Reed and Gardner Another letter that was addressed to dear mum, dad, and in the um, in those letters, Zuring said something along the lines of, uh, "I'm sure that the officers will think that our disappearance from America has something to do with the death of Elizabeth's parents." So all of these little things together uh, made me very, very suspicious, and I kept on going and, and reading everything I could find within their property. But I didn't know where Bedford in Virginia was. Sorry, I didn't know it was Virginia. I didn't know where Bedford was because there are several Bedfords in America. It was most likely going to be Virginia because it turned out that he was a student at the University of Virginia. But I couldn't trace Reed and Gardner. So what I did on a Thursday, I would take them from their cell and we would wait in the corridor outside the court waiting for for this case to be heard. So I would let them kiss and cuddle, let them have a little chat because they hadn't seen each other for a week. And suddenly when they weren't expecting it, I said, who are Reed and Gardner? And um, Elizabeth Hayson was really shocked, or to me, she appeared shocked and, and didn't say anything. Zuring immediately jumped in and said, oh, there, there are a couple of private detectives that, that were hired to, uh, to track Elizabeth down when she uh, ran away from school. Wright's question strikes a nerve with Zuring and Hayson. He doesn't believe Zuring's story about the private detective for one second. He returns to the police station where he soon receives a phone call. The Sweetie Pie letter. Sweetie Pie, I love you. Please believe me that I love you and only you and always will. Erase all written evidence of Bedford. Don't worry about Cop's remarks. He will stop at the latest in two weeks with his search. And even if he's successful, no one will be interested. Or we'd be in certain computers. And it seems that my question frightened Zuring so much that he wrote a note to Elizabeth and asked the jailer to pass it over to her. But instead, the jailer called me. I went down and uh, collected the, the letter, note, letter, whatever you want to call it. And there was basically a page and three quarters of a, of a small notepad, about you know five or six inch notepad. And uh, the first page was just saying how, he, how much he missed her and all that kind of thing. But on the second page, about two-thirds of the way down, he wrote, erase all written evidence of Bedford and don't worry about the uh, the, the cops' remarks. Uh, if they knew anything, we'd have found out by now. So when I read that, that convinced me that they had committed a serious offence. I just didn't know for sure what it was. I suspected it was a murder. And by now... I thought the, all the other offences, all the other possibilities, such as terrorism and that, were perhaps a little bit less likely. 
but I knew they'd done something wrong. There are actually several letters that he writes that, where he starts off by saying, sweetie pie, dear sweetie pie. Uh, but that, I call that one the sweetie pie letter because that's the one that sort of really convinced me. Transatlantic cooperation. Wright seems to be on the right track, but as it would turn out, finding the American detectives Chuck Reed and Ricky Gardner in the mid-80s turns out to be more difficult than he first thought. Terry Wright. So I was calling all these different police departments and everybody I called said, no, we don't, we don't know anything about it. Um, I'd already searched through Interpol in all of the countries that they traveled through. So I'd, I'd searched America, I'd searched Canada, and all of the European and all the Asian countries that they traveled through uh, before I arrested them that I could tell from their diary that they'd been to. Retired police officer Ricky Gardner. And uh, our dispatcher called me on the intercom and said that, that there was someone that wanted to speak to me. And I said, okay. And so uh, I answered the phone and um, the person with this very strong British accent uh, identified himself as uh, Detective Constable Terry Wright from Richmond, England. So uh, he says, may I ask you a couple questions? And I went, certainly. And he said, uh, do you know Elizabeth Hastman Yensoring? And I said, mm, yeah, I do. And he said, well, I'll ask you a couple more questions. And I said, certainly. He said, are, are her parents dead? And I said, yeah, they are. And he went, well, were they murdered? And I said, they were. And he said, uh, perhaps you'd like to come to England. We have them incarcerated here. The leading American investigator, Ricky Gardner, and Bedford County prosecutor, Jim Updike, fly to London, where British investigators Kenneth Beaver and Terry Wright are waiting for them. So the first thing that I did was to show the Americans the letters and the diary that I'd found. Now, to them, this was additional evidence. So they had all their suspicion back in America, but it wasn't quite enough for them to go and arrest the um, Hastman Zuring. The mileage on the car was double what you would expect. Uh, lots and lots of suspicious circumstances, but no real solid evidence. And now they, they were confronted with the letters that I'd found where you had the, particularly the diary, where there were um, the suspicious entries about wiping fingerprints from the car and from the room and the the worry about the fingerprints on the coffee mug. So this was all in addition to what the Americans originally had. And um, of course, when we started the interviews, we didn't know what either of them were going to say. The interrogations. On June the 5th, when Ace and Zerman were taken back to Richmond Police Station, they were transported back to Richmond separately, booked in separately and put in separate cells. And the first thing we did was to interview Jan Suring. We interviewed him three times that, that, that day and uh, we didn't have time to talk to Elizabeth at all, so she had to wait. But while Jan Suring was prepared to talk to us, we were quite happy to speak to him. So in the very first interview, uh, what we did, we just did like a background type interview and we asked him about the various relationships between him and Elizabeth, him and her parents, Elizabeth and her parents, and so on. Zuring tries to come off as inconspicuous. At the same time, he tries to control the interrogations by saying what can and cannot be recorded. Wright and his colleagues continue to push Zuring, 
After all, they have found another disturbing piece of correspondence. And we kept hitting me with this letter where, you know, like Elizabeth and him corresponding with each other before the deaths. And they're saying things like, um, why don't my parents lie down and die? I, um, you know, I wish they'd drive over the edge of a cliff and all that kind of stuff. My father nearly drove over a cliff at lunch. He nearly got squashed by a tree when he got home and he keeps falling over. And my mother, drunk, fell into the fire. And in Zuring sort of, I call it the psycho letter, <laughs> uh, but in his, in his long rambling letter, um, he says things like, um, you know, there's been a lot of burglars in your area lately. Perhaps there could be another, and this time the outcome might be different. And he says, I've yet to kill. It'd be the final act of crushing and all kinds of weird stuff. The fact that there have been many burglaries in the area opens the possibility for another one with the same general circumstances. Only this time with the unfortunate owners. Despite being confronted with these letters, Zuring seems to enjoy sparring with the police. As we interviewed, as the, as the days went by, we were, between us, we were quite sure that he was actually enjoying this kind of a mental battle between us. He, he was learning as he went along, but I think it was almost like, um, like I'm too clever for you guys. Zuring's confession. But from Terry Wright's perspective, Jens Zuring has overestimated his own intelligence. A mistaken assumption leads him to confess to the crime on June 5th, 1986. I've often been asked, why on earth did Jan Suring confess? Now, of course, he says that he confessed falsely to save his girlfriend. He, he didn't protect her during that interview at all. He, he immediately uh, named her as a co-conspirator. But there, it's still, the question still remains, why did he talk to us in the first place? And I think the answer to that is he thought we had the video from the hotel. He thought we had his fingerprints in the crime scene, and he thought that all he, all he could do by denying it was make things worse when he got back to America. The hotel video in question is footage taken from a security camera in the elevator of the Marriott Hotel in Washington, D.C., which Zuring and Hasem used for their alibi. According to his own testimony, after committing the murders, Zuring threw his blood-stained pants into a dumpster and then returned to the Haysom's house. There, he bandaged the cut on his hand with a towel and wrapped his legs with one of the Haysom's bedsheets. He drove back to Washington this way, entering the hotel without pants on. Zuring himself essentially tells the police during questioning that he would have been caught on film returning to the hotel at night with no pants on. No footage from the security camera exists. While the cameras, in the Marriott were in fact filming the hotel that weekend, they were not recording. Zuring's fingerprints are never found at the crime scene either. However, for the time being, the detectives let Zuring believe his assumptions were correct. Kenneth Beaver, Terry Wright, and Ricky Gardner spend four days questioning Zuring about the events of the night of the murder. Jens Zuring describes what he did on the evening of March 30th, 1985, step by step. His descriptions match with the evidence collected at the crime scene. 
Finally, on June 8th, Zuring gives a detailed description of the sequence of events. He was sitting most of the time, but he did get up and reenact it, showing how, you know, using gestures with his hands to show how he cut uh, cut their throats and how uh, Derek Hasem wouldn't lie down and die. And he said he, he had his arms up and he was like a, a big bear, a lot stronger than, he, uh, than Jan Zuring expected. That's when I... Uh... Uh, I was sitting in a chair and acting like Mr. Hasem. And then, you know, he came up behind me and, and, and sliced my throat like he did Mr. Hasem. He actually described how he killed Nancy Hasem and Derek Hasem. And he wouldn't allow us to uh, record the interview on a, with a tape recorder. But as he was um, describing the events, I took some notes. And I have to say that the, the atmosphere in the room, as he described how he murdered those two people was electrifying and it, it, it made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Nancy and Derek Hasem defend themselves against the attack, which continues to escalate. It was just so intense and um, he was reliving the experience that, that he, he felt himself as he murdered them. And of course, once he'd struck that first blow, he was fighting for his life too. Nancy Hasem ran off to the kitchen and came back with a knife of her own, trying to defend herself and her husband. As he was describing all this to us, it was just so intense. On the 8th of June, when he really went into detail about the murders, he did look very depressed because I think that the reality had dawned on him that he was now, he'd been caught and he was now going to go back and face the penalties for what he'd done. And that's why I sat with him for quite a long time in the cell before I left him. I, I took him down. I could see that he was depressed and his um, morale was very low. And I just sat and talked to him for a while. The tapes. There are audio recordings of those interrogations and Jens Zuring's confession. However, the recordings are incomplete. During his interrogation, Zuring repeatedly asks the detectives to switch off the recorder and not to write anything down. The detectives agree. For this reason, many of the most shocking details of Zuring's confessions are not on the tapes. For example, he never actually admits outright to killing Nancy and Derek Hasem on any of the recordings. When we read the transcripts, it seems that this is a strategic move on Zuring's part. Here is Kenneth Beaver and Ricky Gardner interrogating Zuring. You said to me, I murdered them too. Now, I'm putting that to you in front of my two colleagues here. You said that to me, didn't you? Are you going to call me a liar? No, I'm not going to call you a liar. I'm not going to call you a liar because I'm not going to ask that question. Why not? Because I'm a right to. Could you break that down and simply say, I did not go to lose chickens and kill Mr. Miss Hayton? Right. And I'm going to repeat now what I said yesterday. Okay. I have answered that question off the record. I'm not going to answer it on the record. Um, for the same reasons I described above. And you've given us an uh, explanation of why you wish right. to answer some questions and refuse to answer others. Go ahead. Right. I feel that there are certain questions which I can't answer truthfully at this point without incriminating myself. When the recorder is switched off, Zuring is able to clearly articulate his involvement in the Hasem murders. And um, so he tells me that he 
you know, of course I've advised him of his rights and, um, and he tells me that he wants to talk to me, but he won't let me record it or take any notes. And, um, he, that's when he proceeds to tell me that he, uh, did drive back to loose shippings that night and murder the, uh, Mr. Riz Hasem. Basically I said, well, did you kill Derek and Nancy Hasem? And he said, well, you know the answer to that. And I said, well, yeah, but you tell me. And he said, yeah, I killed him. So I'm paraphrasing there, but I mean, I, I made a statement about that many, many, many years ago, and you can look up the, the exact words. Even though Zuring goes out of his way to avoid saying as much during his confessions, at the end of the interrogations, there are enough notes and recordings in which he severely incriminates himself. In another confession that he offers to a German state prosecutor in late 1986, he sticks to this version of the incident, describing the sequence of events in even greater detail. All of the recordings of Zuring's confessions are admitted as evidence during Zuring and Hasem's trials. Incommunicado. Yem Zuring and, later his supporters, raised serious allegations against the team of investigators in connection with his confessions. They claim Zuring was denied legal counsel and was held incommunicado, meaning that he was kept in solitary confinement and unable to contact a lawyer. But is there any truth to these accusations? When Zuring and Hasem are arrested for check fraud, they are both able to choose a lawyer from a list provided by the detectives. The two choose Keith Barker as their defender. So just a few weeks later, on June 5, 1986, when the two are to be questioned about the murders, they already know how it works. Once again, both Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Zuring have the option to have a lawyer present during questioning. Their decisions are documented. When they were brought back to the Richmond Police Department, they both were given a form and, you know, saying, OK, would, would you like to talk to the police with or without a solicitor? And when Elizabeth checked in and when she filled out her form, she checked, yes, I want a solicitor present before I can, but before I talk to the police. Well, when Jens checked in, he checked, no, I'm, I'll talk to the police or didn't ask for a solicitor. When Zuring begins confessing to the murder, the police once again recommend that he consult with an attorney. I think the wisest way for you is to go downstairs and for me to get you at least an English attorney and you discuss your case with him. Okay, come on then. Elizabeth Hasem's confession. Already in the first interview, Elizabeth Hasem has no objection to her conversations being recorded. Her attorney and his assistant are both present. The room is full, as Terry Wright recalls. We were so busy talking to Jan Zuring that she was sitting in her cell for days. She must have been wondering why on earth, that, like, where, why weren't we talking to her? And of course, she didn't know what Jans was saying. So eventually, on Sunday evening, Sunday the 8th of June, she asked to speak to us. And she started off by being quite adamant that she didn't know anything about the murders and that uh, Jan Suring had driven off in a car to go and meet some friends. And she stuck to that quite strongly. It takes a few hours for Elizabeth Hasem to crack. 
And of course, Ken and I had already taken the confessions from Jan Suring, so we we knew uh, pretty much what had happened. So basically, we were picking flaws with her story. And eventually, Ken Beaver said, now, come on, tell the truth. You led that poor boy on. Beaver hits a nerve. I think when Ken called him that poor boy and told her that she'd led him on and that he it was her fault, I think, because she, she went very quiet for quite a long time, and I think that was the trigger that made her sort of break down and, and decide to confess. But initially, when we pushed her a little bit more, she initially said, oh, all right then, I did it myself, I got off on it. Uh, and it was a flippant comment, and you can tell that if you listen to the audio tapes, you, you will know it wasn't a confession. She wasn't saying she was at the crime scene. And it was only after quite a bit of talk that she eventually uh, sort of broke down and then told the story about uh, how they'd planned the murder beforehand and that um, it, she'd stayed to do the alibi and that the answer had gone off to do the murders. She, she was very quiet and just ashamed of what she'd done. Zuring, on the other hand, while he was talking to us from day to day, seemed to be enjoying it. He seemed to like to be the centre of attraction. In her trial in 1987, Elizabeth Hasem sticks to the statement that she gave the detectives in London. While she stayed in Washington, D.C., on the day of the murders, Jens Zuring was the one who committed the crime, instigated by her. With this confession, Hasem incriminates herself and she pleads guilty to being an accessory before the fact. She is sentenced to two 45-year prison sentences. The Atrocity. Jens Suring, on the other hand, tells a very different story. He tells the investigators that, while he had fatally injured the Hasems, the most horrific injuries had been inflicted by someone who had entered the home after he had left. Terry Wright. Throughout the interviews, even before the full, the full confession on the 8th, during the, the previous days, Zuring had asked to speak to Ricky Gardner on his own, initially, and then in front of us as well, and on tape on occasions, he basically said that um, the lady who was a friend of Nancy Hasem and the lady who found the bodies, he said that he thought that she had followed him into the house after he killed them, or after he'd uh, mortally wounded them, at least, and she had made phone calls and called people in to the house for some kind of ritual to be committed on the bodies. Wright does not believe this story. There is nothing to indicate that this was the case. I think he actually believed that's what happened. He, he believed he killed them, or at least left them almost dead, and that somebody came in after him. He told Elizabeth that to, to excuse the injuries he caused, um, and then after that he, he believed it himself. Experts refer to murders like the one that took place at the Haysom's home as overkill meaning that the injuries inflicted, 
or the force involved go far beyond what is necessary to commit the murder itself. Renowned German criminologist, profiler, and author Axel Petermann describes an overkill as a general phenomenon. The attempt to decapitate the victim is a very clear indicator for overkill and could also mean that the perpetrator was attempting to depersonify the victim. These kinds of crimes, overkill and depersonification, tend to occur when the perpetrator is already familiar with the victim in some way. When rage, hate or aggression play a role, the person experiences arousal or a lack of impulse control. These could tell us something about the perpetrator or perpetrator's mental state or about their relationship to the victim. But as Axel Peterman explains, there are other factors that can lead to overkill. Inexperienced criminals also tend to display excessive force when the victim does not die immediately because they are unable to bear this moment. The fact that the victim keeps fighting back and fighting back and is still alive, and they want to achieve exactly the opposite. So, the violence increases. The tug of war. Initially, Elizabeth Hasem and Jens Suring remain in custody in the United Kingdom because they have to serve their first prison sentence for check fraud. However, the American authorities soon file a petition for extradition, which Hasem readily accepts. She returns to the United States and is put on trial in 1987. Zuring, on the other hand, fights tooth and nail against extradition. Jens Zuring decided that he was not going to go back. He was actually quite angry with Elizabeth that uh, she had agreed to go back and told her so in several letters. He was trying to get her to fight the extradition. He was trying to get her to use her contacts and her family's contacts to try and find people in the UK government, in the, in the police force, in the judiciary, anybody that he thought might be able to help him. He wanted her to reach out to them through her brothers to get them to do the right thing at the right time, so, i.e. the judge to refuse the extradition or a member of parliament to stand up on and, and act on his behalf just to manipulate the system. Sit down and write to all your upper-class, well-connected friends again, all of them, in toto, ala to the whole shebang, the lot, and scrounge around for a top-class, our-sort-of-people solicitor and barrister with A, connections in the home office, and B, connections in the Bow Street extradition court. Especially these personal connections are absolutely, astoundingly vital, super important. I only know that I've got a fairly decent chance of getting to my country if someone with the right connections can whisper magic words into the ears of judges at the extradition courts or at the various courts of appeal, ending finally with the British Minister of the Interior or Minister of the Home Office or whatever he's called. Jens Zuring hopes that he can be tried in Germany and that he will be sentenced as a minor there. He continues to vigorously fight against extradition to the U.S. because he would potentially face a much longer prison sentence or even the death penalty there. So he fought the extradition right up until 1990. And throughout that time, he still maintained that he killed the Hasems. He didn't 
change his story at all. His case went to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, that case caused the UK to... It became a, a stated case in European law uh, where if somebody was going to be subjected to inhumane treatment or to the, a death penalty, that European countries would not send them back to a country where that would happen. That law still stands today and, and it's affected uh, a lot of things. And of course, for the better in many ways, because you know it, it was considered to be a breach of human rights. After the US authorities guarantee that if he is found guilty, Jens Zuring will not be given the death penalty, he is finally extradited to the United States on January 12, 1990, three years after Elizabeth, and transferred to prison in Bedford County, Virginia. The trial. He had a sheet draped over him, and uh, it had a, a large quantity of, of blood on it. And I said to him, oh, my God. And um, he said that he had killed my parents. And Soaring, do you have any reason to say or cause to offer why this court should not now pronounce judgment in your two cases? I'm innocent. Jens Zuring's jury trial is held in Bedford County, Virginia, in June 1990. Zuring's hopes of extradition to Germany have been dashed. With the prospect of life behind bars, Zuring changes his strategy for the first time. In a spectacular about-face, during his trial, he suddenly claims that his confessions were false. Now he claims that he is not guilty and, in fact, that he only took the blame to try and protect Elizabeth Hasem, who is the real murderer? Attorney and American legal expert Andrew Hamill. And now during his trial, he suddenly unveils a brand new theory. And now the theory is, I confessed to the crimes, but I didn't actually commit them. I simply confessed them to take responsibility from Elizabeth uh, so that she wouldn't get convicted of murder and sentenced to death. But even so, the jury looked at his new weird theory that made very little sense. And then they looked at his four, five confessions from 1986 that are quite consistent and make plenty of sense. And they decided, obviously, those confessions were accurate. Zuring's trial in 1990 is one of the first to be broadcast live on American television and is shown on the Daily News Channel, Virginia. Today, Zuring and his network insist that his trial was unfair, that the media circus negatively affected the jury. Andrew Hamill contradicts this claim. Criminal trials are done by humans. And so, you know, sometimes a prosecutor blurts out something that he shouldn't say. Sometimes a juror doesn't remember accurately what was said at trial. Sometimes the judge may make an incorrect ruling Every single trial has errors in it. But you quickly learn as a lawyer to differentiate between serious errors that really affect the verdict and other errors which it was unfortunate, they shouldn't have happened, people should do better, but the trial came to the right result. The jury in Virginia finds 24-year-old Jens Zuring guilty of the murders of Nancy and Derek Hasem. His multiple consistent confessions play a key role in the jury and the judge's decisions. He is handed down two life sentences.
Elizabeth Hasem is also given a lengthy prison sentence. In her trial, she not only seriously incriminates herself, but also Jens Suring. At the start of their relationship, Zuring and Hasem write each other long, intense letters and spend every minute together. But in reality, the seemingly romantic relationship has a dark, toxic side from the very beginning. Jens acted of his own free will. He had a choice. He had a choice. He had a four-hour drive. No matter what I said to him before that, no matter what I had written to him in months before that, he had a choice whether he killed my parents or not. The Zuring System, Episode 2 of 8, The Confessions. Our narrator is Karen Cifarelli. You also heard the voice talents of Celine De Janeiro, Jeffrey Middleman, and Seamus Sargent. This has been a production of Argonne Lab and CCC Cinema and Television 2022. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.